welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. I want to say welcome back, everybody. I hope everyone has had a great week. Um, I have been reading The Institute, of course, and I'm loving it so far. I really wish I would have been done with it by now, (laughs) but life kind of took over and made it a bit more difficult to find that free time to read. So I'm hoping to finish it this weekend and then have a review for it up on my blog at thecircleopens.com. And uh, this week in King News, we got a trailer for In the Tall Grass that is coming to Netflix. And In the Tall Grass is based on the novella by King and Joe Hill. And it looks perfectly spooky. I am a huge fan of Patrick Wilson. Um, He was actually one of my top choices for the adult Bill Denborough in uh, It Chapter 2. And actually, James Marston, uh, who was playing Stu Redman in The Stand, was signed on to be in The Tall Grass. Uh, But then scheduling conflicts forced him to drop out of the role, and they got Patrick Wilson. Um, So either way, I think it's going to be great. I think it looks like a lot of fun. Um, I read the novella a couple weeks ago, and I actually need to get that review up too. (laughs) So, um, But the novella will actually be featured, um, I believe, in Joe Hill's upcoming collection um, called Full Throttle. And I think that comes out next month. Uh, But In the Tall Grass on Netflix will drop on October 4th. I also read that uh, The Jaunt, one of King's short stories in his Skeleton Crew compilation, will be adapted by Andy Muschietti of Vid fame. So he'll also be adapting Roadwork, as previously mentioned in a previous uh, podcast episode. And I think we're going to continue to see more of King's work being picked up and adapted after the massive success of It Chapter 1 and It Chapter 2. I think um, together they've uh, grossed about a billion dollars now, and that's not an exaggeration. I think that's actually the proper number. So hopefully they'll do right by the stories that they do choose, and we'll have more to look forward to. Um, Historically, King adaptations have not been um, as good as they could have been, um, because I think that... uh, directors and producers producers come in and try to change his vision into their vision and sometimes that works I think it worked in it chapter one and it chapter two and sometimes it does not um and it would take me a long time to list off all of the adaptations where I think that went askew (laughs) so I'm not going to do that but I I'm still excited I think we still have a whole lot to look forward to and today September 21st, when you guys will, um, well, I don't want to say when you'll be listening to this, because who knows when you listen to this, but today, when the episode drops, September 21st, today is Stephen King's 72nd birthday. Um, So happy birthday to the master of horror. Um, I hope that he has a lot more stories in him um, to get down on pen and paper so we can enjoy them. I know next year we get um, If It Bleeds will be his next novel. Uh, with Holly Gibney. So I'm really excited for that too. (laughs) It's nice having these things to look forward to because sometimes you just don't have anything and everything's kind of blah. But we had the Institute and then in chapter two, we have the stand next year, we have his new novel next year. um, And then all these other works um, that are coming to us like uh, Lisey's story and 
et cetera, et cetera. Before I get on a tangent about all the stuff I'm excited about coming um, from King's Brain, I'm going to uh, continue on with what I have to say. Um, in terms of the stand from CBS All Access, Whoopi Goldberg uh, debuted her new hair for her role as Mother Abigail this week on The View. And you can check out the video for that on my site, thecircleopens.com. Um, and in another article for Yahoo, uh, they did um, the they did like five things you never knew about the Stan miniseries from ABC. And uh, I linked that on my Twitter at The Circle Opens, or you could just Google it and you, it'll come up. Um, it's a really interesting article. I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of it. Uh, right now because it's just easy to easier to just pull it up and read it and enjoy. I think there's some really fun tidbits in there about uh, the making of The Stand. And uh, Whoopi, they tried to get Whoopi Goldberg to play Mother Abigail for the 1994 miniseries. Uh, but that was when her career was kind of at a peak and she just wasn't going to be available. And I think... Um, I, know, I think she was on Star Trek back then. Not the original. I know that. There's so many Star Treks. I can't think of the one that she was on. Was it Next Generation? I think it was Next Generation because my parents used to watch that. And I'm pretty sure I saw her in those episodes. But anyway, I'm running off on a tangent again. I'm going to pull myself back. Um, but now they have her for Mother Abigail for 2020. And I just love um, that everything has kind of come full circle for that. Um, but the video from The View, where she's uh, talking about the hair change, and, um, you know, uh, she talks a little bit about how what the makeup guys have done with her. Um, obviously, they're going to age her a lot to be 106 years old, so uh, check out that video, and check out what she has to say about it. It's pretty fun, and I actually do like the hairdo. Um, it's very different from the Mother Abigail hairdo in the 94 series, so go ahead and take a look at that. Um, and then we're going to just jump into it. But first, if you are in need of an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more, of course, you need to check out Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of the Circle Opens podcast can use the code The Circle for 20% off their order at any time. And there's always free shipping to the United States. Um, I love this store. I'm always checking it out for uh, new stuff that they've posted. Some really cool King novels that they have up. Um, I am a lover of, I collect various covers, even if I already have the book. I have many, many covers and editions of The Stand and It. And you know what? If they have a cover that I love, I'm going to buy it regardless of how many copies I have. It drives my husband crazy. But uh, Secondhand Bookery, they've put up some really cool uh, first editions and the like. So please, please check them out at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Okay, so before we begin with chapter 20, I'm going to give you guys a disclosure that I am going to review chapter 20 and 21 today. Um, this is only the second time that I've um, done two chapters in one week, but uh, kind of like chapter 15 with our nurse, Patty Greer, um, chapter 21 is very, very short. It's, um, at least for the Kindle version, it's about two pages, if that. So I'm going to go ahead and lump chapter 21 in with chapter 20 today. Um, and I also want to give everybody a quick thank you to everyone who has left, uh, a rating or, or review or both for the podcast on Apple podcasts or wherever, um, whatever platform you listen to. Um, and everybody who's emailed me the feedback, it's been really appreciated. I'm very grateful. Um, 
I think that word of mouth for the podcast has helped it significantly. So thank you to everybody who has listened from the beginning. And um, thank you and welcome to all my new listeners. And I started this podcast because I just, I wanted to reread the stand for the umpteenth time. And more than that, I wanted to talk about it. Um, And I wanted to talk about it with you guys. So this has been really great. And if the podcast has inspired you to reread the stand or read it for the first time, then, you know, I think I've done my job. It's only been 20 weeks, but it's been a lot of fun. It's been very eye-opening and I've met a lot of really amazing new people and discovered some pretty awesome new podcasts too in the in the meantime. So thank you to everybody who has continued on this journey with me. And this journey now is going to take us back to Maine. But first, I'm going to recap chapter 19. Last week, Larry uh, is still in New York City, and he calls the West Coast to talk to a friend named Arlene. She informs him about a super flu spreading across California that they've nicknamed Captain Trips. She also tells Larry that Wayne Stuckey is sick, but he's left Larry a savings account with about $13,000 in it. And the thought of money awaiting him in California kind of pushes aside any worries Larry might have about this new flu called Captain Trips. But his mom has also caught a really terrible cold. Um, He finds her nearly unconscious on the floor of her bedroom and delirious when he returns to their apartment. Well, I guess to his mother's apartment. It is not Larry's apartment. He's just hanging out there. So Larry gets her back into bed and then rushes out to find help because the hospital lines are all jammed. Today for chapter 20, we are back in Agunquit, Maine at the Harborside Hotel. And this is the oldest hotel in Agunquit, by the way, and has a beautiful view of a yacht club. (laughs) Not the best view, I guess, but uh, Fran, who is now living there, doesn't seem to mind it. She's moved out of the home that she shared with her parents, Peter and Carla. And right now she's attempting to write a letter to her friend Grace, who has been attending college at Smith. She's having difficulties writing this letter. Fran doesn't want to write about her pregnancy or her mom's response to it or their fight. She just wants to write some frivolous things like a bike ride she took with Jesse and some friends, the biology final that she lucked out on, Amy Lauder's wedding. But it's not so easy writing a friendly letter when so much in her life is in turmoil. And Fran is realizing that the letter itself is not very honest either because while the bike rides she had with Jesse and some friends had been fun, she and Jesse were not on the best terms anymore. Um, she had also lucked out on a biology test, but not the final that really counted. And Amy Lauder's wedding, um, well, it says, quote, and Fran's present state seems more like one of those ghastly sick jokes than an occasion of joy. Amy's getting married, but I'm having the baby. Ha ha ha. <laughs> Fran finally finishes the letter, but she does add in that she has some problems of her own. Um, But she doesn't want to write them all down. So she makes plans to talk to Grace about it uh, because apparently her friend Grace has plans to, they have plans to see each other during the 4th of July. So she'll tell her all about it then. And when the letter's finished, Fran is not sure what to do with herself. So she reflects on three phone calls that she received that day. One good, one indifferent, and one bad. The first was from a friend named Debbie who lives in Summersworth, which um, I, I 
I believe this is in New Hampshire, Summersworth, New Hampshire. It's about a 30-minute drive um, from Agunquit if you drive nonstop. And Summersworth is right on the state line into Maine. So uh, Debbie tells Fran that, of course, Fran can come live with them. She and her roommate Rhoda had just lost their third roommate to a job. So they couldn't swing the rent without a third person. And Debbie assures Fran that uh, she and Rhoda are both from big families, so they don't um, – crying babies don't bother them. And Fran is uh, relieved and grateful, and she plans on moving in with Debbie and Rhoda by July 1st. Fran is more than ready to get out of a gunquit. She feels as though the people in town are getting ready to stare at her. There's nothing to stare at now, but eventually there will be. She says that she feels like a bug, who is the, the kind of bug that swells to twice its normal size to scare off predators. And while she knows no one in a gunquit will force her to wear a, quote, scarlet letter, she doesn't think that she'll be able to truly convince herself of that fact until she's taken a break from her hometown completely. Um, she doesn't want, probably doesn't want to hear the gossip. She doesn't want to see the stares. Um, I'm, I have to remind myself that this was 1990, so... Um, a 21-year-old unwed mother um, is probably kind of, you know, scandalous in a, in a town like Agunquit. But Fran is ready to get out and be on her own. And she's going to go live with a couple friends in New Hampshire. Um, who knows for how long. I'm not sure what she's going to do for a job, but that doesn't really matter at the moment. Because the second call, the indifferent call, comes from Jess Ryder, Fran's boyfriend and father of her unborn child. He had tried calling her house first and got the phone number uh, to Harborside from Peter, Fran's father. So Jess calls and figures Fran probably got some static from Fran's mom, Carla, about the pregnancy. It's true, but uh, Fran asks Jess why he would think that. Uh, and Jess responds, quote, She looks like the type that might freak out. It's something in the eyes, Franny. It says if you shoot my sacred cows, I'll shoot yours. Then Jess tells Fran that he's sorry, and he didn't mean to offend her by saying so. Fran realizes that once a lover begins to talk about offending you, they're not your lover anymore. Never mind the fact, you know, that Jess is absolutely right. But he's still on about marriage, and if Fran has changed her mind, he can be there that afternoon with a couple of rings. Fran, of course, imagines him on his bike and resists the urge to giggle. Because we all know Fran tends to giggle or want to giggle in very inappropriate, inopportune times. And she's aware that it's not the right time to do that. It would be a horrible thing to do um, in the moment to giggle at him when he's trying to be, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's trying to be the big man here. He's trying to do right by Fran. But she tells him no. She's not ready to get married. And she's also going to have the baby. But she hasn't decided over whether or not she'll give it up. Jess laments that he wonders about that baby. And that stings a little bit for Fran. Um, I'm not sure if he was implying that uh, Fran's not going to know what to do. She's she's going to be, I don't want to say she's going to be a bad mother, but yeah, he wonders about that baby. And, you know, Jess has some questions like where Fran plans to stay, if he's supposed to ask where that might be. And Fran tells him, no, he's not supposed to ask. And maybe that's a bit undiplomatic. Um, Fran seems to know that that's undiplomatic and it feels like Fran is essentially shutting Jess out or trying to shut Jess out and they both know it. 
Jess wants to know if uh, he has any rights in this. Doesn't he have any responsibility? Doesn't he share? Can't he share in this decision she's making? Fran's response reads, quote, For a moment she was pissed off, and then the feeling was gone. Jess was just being Jess, trying to protect his image of himself to himself, the way all thinking people do so they can get to sleep at night. She had always liked him for his intelligence, but in a situation like this, intelligence could be a bore. People like Jess, and herself too, had been taught all their lives that the good thing to do was commit and be active. Sometimes you had to hurt yourself, and badly, to find out it could be better to lie back in the tall weeds and procrastinate. His toils were kind, but they were still toils. He didn't want to let her get away. So Fran tells Jess that they agreed on the pill so the baby wouldn't happen, so Jess has no responsibility in this. Um, From then on, you know, the situation, the conversation is pretty stilted. Jess wants to make sure that she'll tell him when she's settled, if she needs money, uh, that he'll want to see her, blah, blah, blah. Fran agrees, um, and they finally say goodbye. And she realizes that they hung up without saying, I love you, which was a first for them. And it makes her sad because the goodbyes had seemed final while the conversation felt unfinished. The last call, the bad call, came from her father, Peter. Peter and Fran had just had lunch the day before where Peter had told her that he was worried about Carla. And um, the effect that this baby news was having on her. Um, Peter had found Carla in the parlor with her genealogical book on her lap. And she has this book. Carla has this book. Um, that was mentioned uh, in the last Fran episode where it kind of, this book goes over all of their ancestors, all of Carla's ancestors. And she's very protective of this book. Uh, She put a lot of work into this book. And apparently she's been in the parlor just thumbing through this book all night. Um, Peter finds her the next morning asleep in the chair with the heavy book in her lap. Um, And Carla also has a cold. She's sick. Just, you know, she says it's just the sniffles or allergies, but she also refuses to see a doctor. And Peter uh, tells Fran that he was pretty sure she had a fever, although Carla would not let him take her temperature. So today in this chapter, during the phone call um, that Peter, Peter calls Fran and tells her that Carla is still sick and in bed. And she finally allowed um, their doctor, Dr. Edmonton, to see her. Dr. Edmonton thinks that she's got the flu which is uh, always a dangerous thing for elderly people. And Fran knows this. And Peter told Dr. Edmonton everything about the baby and the fight that Carla and Fran had. And, you know, Peter thought maybe all of this had caused Carla to fall ill. Uh, The doctor assures Peter that that didn't happen. That's not the case. That flu was flu. Apparently, there's a lot of flu going around in a gunquit, a very nasty breed of it. They think that it migrated out of the South, and apparently New York is also swamped with it. But Carla has been running herself ragged for years, and according to the doctor, Carla had had a welcome mat out for the first germ of evil that passed her way. She was getting old, and she didn't want to. Fran, of course, wants to come by and see her, but Peter does not think that's a very good idea. Um, He tells her just to hold off for a bit, and Carla will come around. So four hours after that phone call, the bad phone call, Fran is getting ready to head out into the rain. She's feeling guilt about her mother's condition. Um, And, you know, she knew her mother was worn down. She can't help but wonder now how she'll assess the responsibility of Carla's condition worsening um, 
or, you know, God forbid, what if she dies? Uh, Fran knows that that's an awful thought. She doesn't want to think about losing her mother. And she sure she is sure that the drugs that the doctor gives her will knock out that flu. And with, you know, Fran's going to move to Summersworth. And without having Fran in her line of visibility, Carla's going to bounce back and recover. Um, you know, it's always those hopeful thoughts that one has when somebody is ill, um, that refusal to believe that it could get any worse. But then the phone rings again. And Fran is baffled by this because she already had her three phone calls. So who on earth could this be? You know, she thinks maybe it's Jess trying to convince Fran one last time to marry him. Um, but as Fran goes to answer it, it's like she has that ominous feeling in her gut. She knows it's her father and she knows that the ner- the news that he gives her will be worse this time than before. It's, she thinks, quote, it's a pie, she told herself. Responsibility is a pie. Some of the responsibility goes with all the charity work she does, but you're only kidding yourself if you think you're not going to have to cut a big, juicy, bitter piece for yourself and eat every bite. Fran answers the phone, and for a very brief moment, there's silence, but then Peter is there, sounding like he might start crying. Fran asks if it's her mother, and Peter says uh, he'll swing by and pick her up. You know what? If somebody asks, you know, if, if it's their mom, are they okay, and that person doesn't answer, but they deflect, that's when the panic, I think, really triggers it. That's when it gets worse, because you know something awful has happened, and they don't want to tell you over the phone. Fran panics, of course, and she screams at her dad. She wants to know if her mother is okay. She's frightened and worried now, and apparently is thunderstorming outside, so that's not helping her nerves. Peter finally explains that Carla has gotten worse. Her fever has gone up, and she's delirious. Um, And those aren't good symptoms to have. We know this by now. The doctor was out helping other people, so Peter called the hospital. Their two ambulances were out on calls already, but they said they would add Carla to the list. There is a list of people that they're picking up. Peter says he knows one of the ambulance drivers, and unless there's a car wreck, he sits around and plays cards all day. Um, So obviously, you know, a gun quit doesn't get a lot of need for an ambulance, but now they have a list of people that they're going around picking up and taking to the hospital. When the ambulance arrived, they had six people in the back. As they took Carla, she told Peter that she couldn't catch her breath. Peter agrees to come pick up Fran. And as Fran waits, she sees the sun starting to peek out through the storm clouds. There's a rainbow too, but that doesn't help the guilt gnawing inside her stomach. Quote, eat your pie, she told herself as she waited for her father to come. It tastes terrible, so eat your pie. You can have seconds, even thirds. Eat your pie, Franny. Eat every bite. That brings us to the end of chapter 20. And so Fran did move out and into the Harborside Hotel, although we don't know if she went on her own or if Carla threw her out. And there's a very real possibility of it being a mutual choice. Um, Fran had seemed ready to move out anyway because Carla refused to let her stay. Fran has a new place lined up in New Hampshire. She's going to stay with a friend. Um, And she plans to take the fall semester off from school. Um, We don't know yet what she plans on doing for a job. um, But she does hope to be moved in with her friend Debbie by July 1st. Uh, She and Jess have seemed to come to an end. Jess has been making some last-ditch efforts to have a say 
and what Fran does with the baby, but Fran isn't having any of it. <laughs> and you know what? Jess doesn't try terribly hard to change her mind either. Uh, he doesn't fight for her. He doesn't fight to be involved with the baby. Um, I'm not sure Fran would have let him even if he did fight, but she does seem saddened by the finality of the conversation. And personally, it's probably for the best regardless. Fran has plans, and while she told him she wasn't sure if she would keep the baby, um, it seems pretty clear that she wants to and that she will. This doesn't really come as a surprise. Uh, their first scene together, um, Fran's first scene in the book, actually, it felt strange and awkward when Fran told him that she was pregnant. And we don't really get any sense of the kind of couple that they were before the pregnancy other than um, when Jess took Fran to a poetry reading and he got pissed at her for giggling through it. Um, they never felt very compatible to me. And this is something of a relief that Fran wants to make her own choices. Even if she keeps the baby, um, who knows if Fran, not Fran, who knows if Jess will be involved? Who knows if Fran wants him to be involved? When Jess asks her if she'll contact him once she's settled, she says, I think so. Not a confident yes. So I think it's pretty safe to say that they're probably finished, at least romantically. But the important part of this chapter, I think, is Carla, Fran's mother. Carla is sick, um, and we know, yes, we know that this is Captain Tripp's. Um, Peter was worried that Fran's pregnancy and the fight that they had, that Fran and Carla had, might have led to it. And this suggestion is dismissed quickly by the doctor because flu is flu. Um, but it seems to dig down into Fran. She begins to wonder what her role is in her mother's illness. Does she hold any responsibility for it? Or, you know, what could happen if her mother's condition got worse? Fran is feeling the guilt, like her actions might have caused her mom to finally crumple under the weight of everything else she had going on in her life. And it's not a very fair thing to put on her shoulders, but it's very relatable. Um, guilt is not logical. You know, it's, I can see where Fran would think that her mom's illness could be her fault. Um, a germ is a germ though, you know, and even if they had, even if they had been on good terms Carla would have still gotten sick. But I think Peter um, even mentioning to Fran that he asked the doctor if this could be the fault of the pregnancy news. I mean, uh, that's a lot of that's a lot of weight to put on Fran's shoulders. And we know that Carla will not make it. She has Captain Trips. She has the fever, the sniffles, the delirium, and she's having trouble breathing. Um, and Peter is in a panic because the ambulance has to add Carla to a list of people to pick up. They only have two ambulances from the local hospital and many, many people are sick. It's not just Carla. So Captain Trips has made its way up to Maine and they believe it migrated from the South, which is possible because it's all over now. Um, but we don't know for sure. And it doesn't matter anymore because Captain Trips has a strong hold on the country, and people are going to start dying right and left, including Fran's mother. Uh, Peter doesn't sound as though he's been infected, but that doesn't mean anything either, given how the virus seems to be different for everyone. And this is a really sad chapter, in my opinion, um, not only because of Carla, but Fran is pregnant, and she's on her own right now. She's 21. That's not to say, you know, that she can't handle it because she seems like a strong person. She's a strong character, in my opinion. It's still a little heartbreaking. You know, she's 21 and on her own. Her boyfriend, um, well, her ex-boyfriend 
is not someone she's in love with, nor does it seem like he's in love with her. And he's so very wishy-washy on the entire situation. Um, Do you want to get married? Do you want to have an abortion? I'll get the rings. I'll get some money. It's just, ugh. (laughs) It's likely that Jess is relieved that she doesn't want him involved much. And even if Fran had said yes, he has some responsibility and some say in the decision, what would he have wanted? You know, it's Fran should be home with her parents. Her, Her mother should be supporting her and helping her. Um, instead, they've had this massive blow up over the pregnancy that has damaged their already strained relationship. And now Carla is sick and dying. And who knows if Fran will be able to make peace with her before that happens. So, you know, it's kind of um, not only, you know, Larry. Larry Underwood is dealing with his mom dying. But Fran's mom is dying too. And both Larry and Fran have interesting relationships with their parents. There is an estrangement um, in both, but on different levels. So how will they respond to this loss? And how will Fran respond to losing her father should Peter not be immune? And what about her baby? That's a whole other can of worms that we're not going to open right now. (laughs) But um, so, yeah, so I'm going to pop over here to chapter 21. Um, Again, like I mentioned before, you know, this is only the second time in 20 weeks I've had to do this. But, you know, like uh, chapter 15. Uh, Chapter 21 is extremely short and not near long enough, in my opinion, to justify an entire episode, unless that episode would be about seven minutes. (laughs) So hopefully you'll all enjoy this one as well, because instead of jumping down to Atlanta to check in on Stu Redman, we're going to head north from a gunquit. Maybe, I don't know, northeast a little? I don't know. I suck at geography, you guys. <laughs> but we're going to travel to Stovington, Vermont, to the Plague, San- Plague Center, where Stu Redman is currently being held in a, uh, he's in a room with bars on the windows. After the Atlanta Plague Center was breached uh, by Captain Tripps, or they're calling it A-Prime, the whole operation was appended and moved to Vermont. So, Stu is now in Vermont where his window in the plague center overlooks a small town below. I kind of imagine it kind of up in the mountains a little bit here. Stu realizes he's in a room that is more like a jail cell than a hospital room. Denninger is gone, as is Dietz. But Stu doesn't know what happened to them. If they got sick, maybe they're dead by now. It seems like uh, these people are still running tests on him, but they kind of seem pointless. Um, they seem unfocused, like they're just going through the motions right now. Um, and they don't really care about the results because they're all going to be the same. Except the, the difference between Atlanta and Stovington now is there are guns involved. Men in white suits accompany the nurses who come in to take Stu's blood or urine or spit. And they have guns in little plastic baggies they've attached to their wrists. And these guns are Army-issued forty fives. Stu knows that he cannot play games with them the way he did with Dietz because those soldiers would not hesitate to shoot him if he tried to get uh, funny with them. Stu realizes that if they're simply going through the motions that he has become expendable. It says, quote, being under detention was bad. Being under detention and being expendable, that was very bad. So Stu is still watching the news and it seems to be the same old, same old stuff. Um, But then there's something very small, an atomic power plant, and I'm going to butcher this name, Folk, Folk, Texas, about 30 miles from the Texas border. 
is dealing with um, some circuit problems. There are army units around too, but the news reports that there is no cause for alarm. The army is just a precautionary measure. <laughs> Although Stu is feeling that, um, Stu is aware that Fook, <laughs> Falk, Fook is not that far from Arnett, Texas that had been quarantined and who knows what has happened to Arnett, Texas. It's probably kind of like Shoyo, Arkansas with the ghost town going on. So the news also reports finally on an East Coast flu epidemic. Just the Russian strain, there's nothing to worry about except for the elderly and the very young as usual. There's an interview on the television with a New York City doctor. And we know at this point that Captain Trips is in New York City from Larry's chapters. And this doctor um, is explaining that the flu virus they're dealing with is tenacious. He's urging people to get the flu boosters. But then something interesting happens. He suddenly begins to say something else. And the sound immediately goes out in the interview. Even though you can still see his mouth moving, he's still speaking. It's cut short real quick. It cuts away to the newscaster who tells viewers that there have been some deaths, but that urban pollution and even the AIDS virus have been present in a lot of those fatal cases. The newscaster uh, says, government health officials emphasize that this is a Russian A flu, not the more dangerous swine flu. Now, I would assume that the government at this point knows exactly what kind of flu this is, and it seems... um, irresponsible to be trying to assure the public that this is not a dangerous flu virus when they know that it is. So the the feeling I got from this is they're aware of what's happening and they're trying to minimize the chaos that the truth would bring. They cannot tell people the truth because the country would go up in flames really quickly. So let the American people continue on with their day thinking that they just need a flu booster and that they'll be okay when it is basically the exact opposite of that. So, uh, yeah, the newscaster smiles and someone off screen sneezes. That reminded me a little bit of the Gene Shalit show from uh, the chapter before with Larry. And it's just these little moments that King puts into the narrative to show us that Captain Trips is literally everywhere. So while we're with Stu, King essentially uses this chapter to establish Stu is in Vermont the location of which will become important later. And we will see through his eyes that the news is reporting on Captain Trips, but not in the way that they should be. They're still disguising it as nothing to worry about, and millions will go on with their day believing that, even while the army pops up everywhere and the hospitals become um, overfull and crowded. So at the end of chapter 21, we're back to Stu's mindset, and it says, quote, The sun was touching the horizon now, tinting it a gold that would turn to red and fading orange soon. The nights were the worst. They had flown him to a part of the country that was alien to him, and it was somehow more alien at night. In this early summer season, the amount of green he could see from his window seemed abnormal, excessive, a little scary. He had no friends. As far as he knew, all the people who had been on the plane with him when it flew from Braintree to Atlanta were now dead. He was surrounded by automatons who took his blood at gunpoint. He was afraid for his life, although he still felt fine and had begun to believe that he wasn't going to catch it, whatever it was. Thoughtfully, Stu wondered if it would be possible to escape from here. 
So while Stu is essentially being held prisoner in Stovington, he's realizing now that he really is in trouble. He's expendable. If the people in the Stovington Plague Center catch the A-prime and die, he could be stuck there until he's starved to death. And if they don't die, it's possible someone could come into his room and just kill him instead because he's expendable. He knows uh, he's no use to them anymore. And he's also dangerous because he could walk out of that building and tell everyone what he knows. So now Stu is wondering if he can escape. And I'm sure he's going to try it. So that's it for chapter 21. And that's it for this episode. Next week, we check back in with uh, Major Len Crichton and General Starkey as they discuss their next steps and if mankind can still be saved. So I hope that you have all enjoyed this episode and these two chapters. Um, I would love to know what you thought about these chapters or any of the chapters we've read free, uh recently or prior. So feel free to send me an email at thecirclecloses at gmail.com or you can find me on social media at The Circle Opens. And if you are enjoying the podcast, it would always be much appreciated if you want to leave me a rating or a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever, wherever you listen. <laughs> and the, they are always helpful and they are always appreciated. And it really feels like every time I sit down to record these episodes, I get sick. I probably sound like it too. And I really think this is psychosomatic. I think that this book just has that effect on people. So that being said, M-O-O-N, that spells see you next week. <laughs>